saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. I'm excited to welcome you to the Unfinished Tales. This is the next book that we will be exploring. And I'm excited to get into this because it is a very different kind of thing from the Silmarillion. And so we're going to take this episode to talk about what exactly the unfinished tales are and the first story in the book of Tour and his coming to Gondolin. And just by Reading the name of the first story, you probably already have questions. If you haven't come across this book before, if you haven't read it yourself, didn't we talk about Tour? Wasn't that in the Silmarillion? We had this whole section about him. We had this whole section about Gondolin. And then, of course, the you know final days of the city, all of that stuff. We already did this, right? Well, yes and No. And that's the answer for many of these other books that you get about Tolkien's works. Because when Christopher Tolkien was piecing together the Silmarillion, he had to pull from a vast trove of versions and variations on these stories because of the way that J.R.R. Tolkien would write. And many of these stories go very, very far back to a very early period of time. And Tour is the, I guess, penultimate example of that. Penultimate example, is that the right way to say that? It is a story that he began writing when he was in his teens. And as far as we know, this may be the very first story that he wrote at all, or at least the very first one that exists within this greater fantasy that he eventually crafted. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to go into the details about what exactly this is, why the unfinished tales were put together and released, how they relate to the Silmarillion, how they relate to the other novels, the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit. And why is this book even necessary to begin with? Why, why did this even come out? So we're going to get into the details. Don't worry. I will explain it all to you. And we're going to prep for engaging with Tour and his coming to Gondolin. Because that is about half of this book. And I have a feeling it's going to take us a few episodes to make our way through it.
Okay, so the first question we need to cover is what exactly is the Unfinished Tales? Well, the name is fairly accurate because it is a collection of stories that were unfinished. They're unfinished in different ways, though. So what does that mean? The story of Tour and his coming to Gondolin is unfinished in that it ends abruptly. We don't get an end of the story in this version of the tale. Some of the other stories are fragmented. We have pieces of the story, and then we have gaps of time that aren't really explained. And so there wasn't a complete narrative. There are just key points in the narrative. And you could probably say that some of the stories that we went through in the Silmarillion kind of felt that way because they were more detailed in some sections and less detailed in others. But there was more there for those stories in order to work them into the greater narrative. Whereas here, we're going to have some stories that that have gaps and the gaps were kind of filled or weren't kind of filled. And that's just what we have. You also have some stories that are added in here in order to fill out some of the details. For example, the history of Galadriel and Celeborn. We know about Galadriel. We know she ends up with Celeborn. We know about her time living in Doriath and studying under Melian and and these kinds of things. But in the Silmarillion, we don't really have the story about what happens with her and Celeborn. What happens there? Well, we have some fragmented details that we will be learning about as we get to that part of the Unfinished Tales. So all of the stories here were not complete enough in their own details to work their way into the Silmarillion, which, by the way, was published in 1977. This book published three years later, 1980. And in order to get this out into the world, in order to make this a compilation of stories with details and things that are worth actually sharing with other people, Christopher had to pull from other versions of these stories. In the Silmarillion, most of the time, it seems, and I'm not an expert on how that all of these details were pieced together. So if I get any of those details wrong, please forgive me and, and send me a correction and I will update on a future episode. But from my understanding of the Silmarillion, he took most of the time, the most complete version of the story, the most recent rewriting of the story, pieces of the stories that were the most fleshed out in order to piece them together and um, find versions without as many contradictions as possible, that kind of thing. He was taking the best of the best and piecing it together in order to create one big, long narrative in a way that his father would have been proud of. When it comes to these extra books, books like The Unfinished Tales, he's taking earlier versions of those stories and presenting them to us so that we can see what was going on behind the scenes. So what this means for us in The Unfinished Tales is that this version of the story will not 100% fit in with the version that we might remember from the Silmarillion, or at least the details that we are given in and around the longer version that we will explore in something like of Tour and his coming to Gondolin. It also means that we're going to get potentially 
different names for people or places. One of the things that Tolkien spent a lot of time on was the names of the characters. And I've talked about this a lot on previous episodes. The names of the people, their titles, the things they call themselves. I'm thinking about how many times Turin changed his name because he was trying to beat his doom. All of that is extremely important to Tolkien. So if he came up with a character, say, in the 1930s and then revised that story 15 years later, oftentimes that character and his perception of that character would have changed in that time. So the name would have changed. So in the Silmarillion, we get what was probably the final version of the name, the one that he landed on closest to the end of his life. In these versions, we might get earlier versions of characters and their names. And that's important. You might think, well, why give us an earlier version of a name if we know that he settled on something later? Well, even that earlier version of the name was there for a reason. It gives us insight into how he saw the story at an earlier date. You can think of it this way. It gives us insight to the meta story of the crafting of the story, if that makes sense. Now, in some of the works, the history of Middle-earth, um, if you read the uh, Baron and Luthien book, for example, we get a lot more commentary by Christopher in and around these versions. Like the Baron and Luthien book is a compilation of various versions of that story as it evolved over time with notes and commentary about how this version was different from another version. The history of middle earth series is very, very full of that. It goes all the way back to the creation of the world, the Ainu Lindale, all of the stuff that we covered really, really far back at the beginning of this show, uh, the, you know, the first few chapters of the Silmarillion and those versions are very different and it goes into this is there were this many Valar or this is what this Valar's name originally was and you get some really weird sounding things and he stuck with some of those names for a long time. That's what we're going to get a little bit of here in the unfinished tales, but with less of the commentary from Christopher, the beginning of each of these stories and at the very beginning of the book, we get a, a kind of a a prep, a preface, a here's where this story was. Here's the, 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 the situation I walked into <laughs> the murder scene, you know, and I had to piece together the, you know, blood splatter on the wall. Sorry, this is a little a little gory, but, you know, like the papers messed up on the table. The chair was pushed up, you know, out of the way. Like uh, these are the details. This is what I came into. This is the situation. And so therefore, this is what you were about to read and why it's in the state that it's in. We get something like that at the beginning. But when you actually get into the stories, they are very much written and put to the page the way that that version would have been captured at that period of time and stitched together a little bit by by Christopher. I'm sure a lot of bit, but a lot of bit. Is that a thing? Um, but for the most part, you can read through that with the perspective of this is at least at one point in time what J.R.R. Tolkien would have considered to be the story. Now, some other details about the Unfinished Tales. Uh, one of the things that we have to keep in mind while reading this, because context is so important. The Silmarillion comes out in 1977. It was a response to the success 
of the Lord of the Rings and the fact that his father had passed away and people wanted more insight into this clearly dynamic and developed world that was only hinted at by those novels and then the appendices. So he puts out the Silmarillion. It has extreme success and people start writing letters again, asking more questions. What about this? What about this story? What about this character here? Why don't we have this version of, of this, these events? There must be more to know. And so within the next three years, he puts out the unfinished tales as a response to the community asking more questions. And just like in today's internet community, just like going on Reddit or on some forum and seeing people post questions, who is Tom Bombadil really? A lot of the things that we have been debating and talking about and going over in the bonus episodes about speculation around these characters or these events, people were asking those same questions in the 1970s. They wanted to know more about these key characters. Clearly, there must be more information about Tour. He's an important character. Clearly, there must be more information about Turin. He's an important character. What about Galadriel? She seems very important. She shows up in the novels, right? What about the wizards? Who are these other wizards? Tell us more about the wizards. You had lots and lots of people prodding for as much detail as they possibly could. So Christopher took it upon himself to piece together this version of these stories. And when I think back to that, there's a certain amount of courage, maybe courage is the right word, in order to do that. Because he wasn't just presenting people with more stories the same way that he had presented the Silmarillion. He was trusting that the audience would be attentive enough and smart enough to understand that when they're reading these versions of the stories, when they're digging into these details, that some of this stuff was unfinished. Unfinished in a, well, would J.R.R. Tolkien have actually included this version of the story in the Silmarillion? Was this the thing that was in his head that never quite got onto paper? Or are these just early versions that he wouldn't have wanted out there? Ultimately, Christopher makes the decision that these are better out in the world and puts the work into it. I'm sure it was a ton of work. But there's some trust there in that we are smart enough to be able to take this version to actually read through his details and realize that when we are reading this version, that it isn't necessarily the final quote canon version of a story and that's okay i'm sure there are some details of artists or people coming after artists revealing to the world earlier versions of their works um preliminary versions preliminary writings preliminary uh attempts at Heck, even paintings and things like that. I'm sure there's that. You can see that in a museum somewhere, I'm sure. But to put something out into the world about an extremely popular author by the 1980s that showed some insight and the fact that these things were unfinished, I think took a certain amount of trust 
in the readership, that these people would understand what this is. And I think that we benefit a lot from that because it allows us to talk about the things beyond just the final versions of these and to see the way that they evolved and changed over time. And I would imagine if anyone is an aspiring author, an aspiring writer who wants to create their own worlds or someone who just wants to play Dungeons and Dragons with their friends and make up their own worlds with that, that all of this is helpful. We stand as artists, we stand as people who work on projects, on, on all sorts of different things in our lives, on the shoulders of the people who came before us. And that's a lot easier to do when you can clearly see the person that you're just standing on. That analogy is so bad. I'm going to leave it in there. We got to go thank our patrons. We'll be back in a minute to talk about what we're getting into with tours coming to Gondolin. So don't go anywhere. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and we have to thank our newest patrons. Welcome to the patron Patreon, uh, Frederick and Guardian of the Blind. And we have to shout out all of our VIP patrons. But before I go through that big long list, if you are interested in getting T-shirts or stickers or ad-free versions of the show or bonus episodes, there are a ton of bonus episodes. If you made your way through the content and you're like, I wish there was more, there's a whole lot more. It's like basically double almost. Uh, so all of that on patreon.com slash L-O-T-R Lorecast. Let's try to get through the names, all of our VIP patrons as fast as I can. AK Music Lover, Anakin Skywalker, Aragorn III, Austin C, Azzle Razzle, Barney D, Bo, Black Squirrel, Brandy D, Chewbacca, Cutter Metalworks, Darth Feanor, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Fulcrum, Gavinalaf, Gemma D, Jesse P, Katie L, Katie S, Capenna, Larry, Lori B, Nick K, Nick L, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Peace Lutheran Church, Sam B, Sauron for Life, Swiggy Swoo, TJT, Tour Son of Whore, 97, Tyler M. Thank you so much to all of you and to everyone else who supports the show. All 182 
of you currently. Holy moly. Uh, we also have some new reviews that came in. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, then I'll read it out on a future episode of the show. Oh, and also the Spotify wrapped stuff. If you listen on Spotify, Spotify wrapped went out, check your email. Uh, you can see how many hours you listen to this show, like what rank it was among your podcasts, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so go check that out. But we've got two reviews that came in. This one comes from JHB two, four, five, six, seven, seven in great Britain who writes, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. So listen to this podcast. Nice. Uh, they write as a LOTR and general fantasy lore lover. This has to be my all-time favorite podcast. Reading The Silmarillion proved to be quite challenging for me. At times, I could feel, or it could feel, a bit like a slog, wanting to get past some of the more dry and dense information. This is in no way the case with Tom's podcast. He creates, or created an easy listening, relaxed feel to the show without glossing over the rich lore that runs through these stories. It's a real joy to listen to these, and I can't wait for what's in store next. Thank you, Tom. You sound like a 10 out of 10 human. Well, thanks. Uh, P.S. Would you ever consider creating a Wheel of Time podcast? Uh, I I haven't read the Wheel of Time. I watched a little bit of the show so far, but I haven't read them. So I don't I don't know enough. I'm sure there's lots of stuff to go over and somebody probably should create that podcast. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know enough. I'd have, I'd, it'd take me a while to catch up, but I don't know. You never know. Um, but thanks for that. And then we've got any fan two in Ireland. Uh, who writes the blue wizards, the blue wizards are called Alatur and Palando love the show. Yeah, that, that is their names. I guess I just didn't notice that or n- mentioned it on a previous episode. I don't know. Maybe I miss said them who knows, but thank you for taking the time to leave a five-star review and thank you for all of your support. All right, let's go talk about tour and this version of the story and what we're getting into. So here we go. So we've cracked open the unfinished tales and one of the first things you notice uh, at the very beginning it starts off with a note this is par for the course there's a note here about the thing you're about to read and then there's an introduction about the thing you're going to read and then we get part one all right great we're getting into it one or i roman numeral one colon of tour and his coming to gondolin And you might think when you first read this that like, oh, cool, we're getting into the story now. This is it. Nope, not there yet. We have an introduction. We have a note, an introduction, and then an introduction to every specific story in the in this whole book. So I'm going to point out some of the things in this introduction. We're not going to read the whole thing. You can go read it. Um, But I'm going to point out some very specific parts because this is the description about what we're about to get into and the context for it. The very first paragraph says this. My father said more than once that the fall of Gondolin was the first of the tales of the first age to be composed. And there is no evidence to set against his recollection in a letter of 1964. He declared that he wrote it out of my head during sick leave from the army in 1917. And at other times, he gave the date as 1916 or 1916 to 17, say for like the winter or something like that. In a letter to me written in 1944, he said, quote, I first began to write the Silmarillion in army huts, crowded, 
filled with the noise of gramophones. Can you imagine that? Can you picture this? World War I, army huts, they're playing gramophones, old-timey record players for, I would suppose, the men who were on leave, relaxing, trying to <laughs> deal with the things that they've been going through in the war. It goes on and says, indeed, some lines of verse in which appear the seven names of Gondolin are scribbled on the back of a piece of paper setting out, quote, the chain of responsibility in a battalion. Remember when we talked about Gondolin and they had the different the different groups, the different uh, flags, the different people, the different like uh, the city was clearly divided into these different battalions. And some of them were like the the ones that protected the king. And some of them were like the uh, the smithing guild, all of that stuff. This all comes from a time of being in World War One. That's where that concept came from. And in fact, this story, the very first story that he pens about the first age of Middle Earth is born in war. Let that sink in. The foundations of his entire mythology were born, inspired by one of the worst conflicts in history. It wasn't just that some of the events were inspired by this. The fact that he was writing stories while in an army hut surrounded by gramophones in his late teens completely set the stage for everything else that we were going to get. So much of the history of Middle Earth is the history of conflict. It's the history of wars. It's the history of Morgoth versus the elves of the Numenorians who originally versus Sauron and then working with him and then against other peoples. This is the crucible, we'll use that word, of all of these stories. There's another detail here where he talks about uh, in the spring of 1920, this is the quote from the book, he was invited to read a paper to the essay club at his college at, of Exeter at the time. And he read The Fall of Gondolin, the notes of what he intended to say by way of introduction of his essay, quote essay, still survive. In these, he apologized for not having been to produce a critical paper and went on, quote, therefore, I must read something already written. And in desperation, I have fallen back on this tale. It has, of course, never seen the light before. This is only a few years after this was originally penned. A complete cycle of events in the elfiness of my own imagination has for some time past grown up rather has been constructed in my mind. Some of the episodes have been scribbled down. This tale is not the best of them, but it is the only one I have so far been revised that has been revised at all. And that insufficient as that revision has been, I dare read aloud. So just a few years after originally penning this story, he presents it to a group of people. Now, as the years go by, he continues writing other stories. He, in fact, he alludes to it here by the night, by 1920, the 1920s, but by, by, by the year 1920, he has already started working on other stories and he doesn't view this one as the greatest. He thinks the others are better. 
And by the late 1930s, he has written and conceived of enough of this first age of the world that he realizes that certain aspects of this story, the original one that he wrote about Tour, have not really worked out. They don't really line up with some of the other things that he's written. So he decides to go back and alter it and rewrite it. And in his own style, the same way that he uses for so many of the other things that he writes, he writes it over again. He doesn't just go in back into the old text and fix details, although he sometimes does that. But with this story in about 1951, he puts together another rewriting of the story from front till about as far as he could get. And at the time, he called it of Tour and the Fall of Gondolin. But in that version, he never gets to the Fall of Gondolin. He basically gets to Tour coming to Gondolin. And then it ends. And that's where we're left with this story. The version that we are reading here is that 1951 version when it was first adjusted to fit in with the rest of the tales. And Christopher notes that this is the version that we get here. And so he has retitled it of tour in the coming to Gondolin because that makes sense. That's actually what this story is. But you can tell in the original title that J.R.R. would not have named it and of the fall of Gondolin if that wasn't also already in his head that he saw the full extent in the direction that this story was going. And so we get the fall of Gondolin in small detail in the Silmarillion and we get tour coming to Gondolin in lesser detail in the Silmarillion in a story that kind of wraps that all together in which was another retelling of this story from a different time in Tolkien's life. This version, however, even though we don't get the end, we get a much more fleshed out earlier part of Tours story. And what I think you'll find here is that it is more detailed, but it also feels more like an actual story with a character who just like any mythology comes into contact with great circumstances, comes from a difficult background and rises to the occasion. This story, I think you will also note now that we'll get a more fleshed out version of it is its contrast to Turin's story. They were cousins, Tur and Turin. And yet they're almost the same story, but one of them is about an individual who leans into their fate, to their doom. And the other is about somebody who's been running away from it. In a lot of ways, Turin is a dark reflection of Tour. And if you understand that Tour's story came first, and Turin's story was tragic and came later, you can see why or how an author might take a story and go, okay, what if I take these elements, but I twist them a little bit? Where does that end up? And we get Turin's story. It's pretty cool. There's another detail here that I think is, is particularly interesting in that this version has, uh, well, here, let me just read it. It says, 
It is thus the remarkable fact that the only full account that my father ever wrote of the story of Tours' sojourn in Gondolin, his union with Idril Celebrindal, the birth of Arendil, the treachery of Maeglin, the sack of the city, and the escape of the fugitives, a story that was a central element in his imagination of the First Age, was the narrative composed in his youth. These details... These central details. I mean, think about, uh, it gives me a little bit of chills right here. The concept of some of these things that are so central to the rest of his writings. The union of a man and an elf. Arendil, who is a central figure into the, in the salvation of everybody at the end of the First Age. The treachery of Maeglin. The sack of a, of a major elven city the impending doom that was coming for the Noldor, and even the power of Morgoth at this point, all starts here. And Christopher notes that a lot of those details, like the ones he just noted, come from the original version of the story. But he can't put that here. It's archaic. It doesn't read the same way. There are too many details that don't match the rest of the story. So instead, what we get is this fleshed out version of Tours beginning part of his story. Not the parts that he pieced together for the Silmarillion, but an extended look at Tour, his story and his coming to Gondolin. We'll be diving into that next week. And I look forward to enjoying this journey with you. So thank you for being here. I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.